everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is uh, History Mystery Theater, uh, Episode 3. I wanted to do a uh, follow-up to Who Was Abe, kind of like a Who Was Abe Part 2. It would be absolutely... Not impossible, but incredibly long to, if, if, if it's a, at all possible, to accurately paint a picture of Abraham Lincoln. As I've said before, there's a, there's a problem and there's a, a benefit all at the same time. There's much more information surrounding Lincoln and the assassination than there was uh, previously. Um, of course, they're not called assassinations, but, I mean, Jackson had an attempt that is chronicled. Uh, it is believed that uh, William Henry Harrison and Zachary Taylor were both poisoned. Uh, Buchanan, the president before Lincoln, was certainly poisoned, but survived. That is a matter of record. Um, how that happened, of course, is disputed because of the cover-up, etc., etc. But the point is, by 1865, there were still enough advances in communications that, um, and the books that would follow, because it just didn't stop in 1865. As years went by, others uh, who were not principals necessarily in the assassination conspiracy, but who knew something was up and also what happened afterward, became more willing to talk as they advanced in age and because they realized that at that point they were also beyond any kind of uh, indictment for uh, treason, etc. But with all that other information comes also all the other stuff that's bloated and sensational. So, again, just like it is today, really, to a certain extent, with the uh, inception of the Internet, as it was back in 1865 and such with photography and with uh, telegraph lines, uh, with the rail being the fastest form of travel at that time, but was not available earlier. I mean, all these things add up to more accounts of what happened, who might have been involved, and you got to you have to really winnow your way through all the information to figure out what you believe is the most plausible uh, scenario with regard to his to Lincoln's assassination. Okay, enough said about that. But I did want to add a couple of things. Uncle Floyd sent me something that um, I, I was aware of but had forgotten about. But it does, uh, I think, need some kind of... Uh, not discussion, but at least mention. Now, in that first uh, segment of uh, Who Was Abe, a number of people made it very clear that Lincoln was not an evangelical Christian. Of course, all our presidents are ev evangelical Christian, according to the mainstream and all this other stuff. 
although nowadays nobody really believes in Jesus anymore or in Scripture, so who cares? But that was a big deal back then. Um, but he was not. And I think there were enough anecdotes to support the fact that he wasn't an evangelical Christian. That doesn't mean he didn't do something, I guess you could say heroic in a sense. At least something that he knew would, would most certainly hasten his demise. I'll give him credit for that. I mean, I don't lionize Lincoln, right? You know, I don't despise him. He was a president. He knew the deal. They all did even as far back as then. And I'll go back with also, uh, I mean, even with Washington, it's the whole, I mean, it's just radiant, as George C. Scott would say, with conspiracy and with the influence of outside uh, powers. But certainly with um, the failed attempt on Jackson, we entered a new era where uh, disposing of a chief executive that went afoul of the powers that be. I mean, I know that's kind of nebulous, very nebulous. But, uh, yeah, they were not outside the reach of retribution. And it's. I guess you could say it started with Jackson. You know, I hear this stuff about somebody pointed a gun and shot at Washington and the bullet, like, miraculously passed through him. I, I, don't even give me that crap. I mean, get that out of here. Right, okay, fine. That's That's part of the myth of George Washington, you know, as God. Uh, but um, Jackson survived his attempt. Lincoln, um, I'm sorry, uh, Harrison did not. Taylor did not. Buchanan did. Lincoln did not. And it goes on. Uh, but we'll stop right there. Now, one of the other things about Lincoln as an evangelical Christian, if you do believe in Scripture, you are not to take an oath to anything other than to the Lord. Okay. And that's why with, with all these evangelical Christians like Washington and such, I mean, they were involved in Freemasonry. Uh, and in this case, um, and Washington was involved in this also, and that is with uh, Rosicrucianism. Now, Rosicrucianism uses scripture and then it mixes it in. I won't call it with New Age because they've been doing this for a long, long time. I mean, Rosicrucianism, I believe, predates Masonry over in Europe. So I can't call it New Age, but it's just this kind of like nebulous spiritual talk about light. Light motif is always used in this stuff. Um, the word, when you ever hear the word God and God and God and God used, that means that they really don't want to talk about Jesus Christ uh, because that would uh, offend too many people, and also because they're really not a Christian organization. Uh, I think about these dating services services that talk about Christians and stuff. Well, the match that God really wants, what God wants and God wants. When, you, when, you, when you're talking about the G word, that means almost anything. If he doesn't come down to the Lord or, you know, Jehovah or Jesus Christ, I mean, yeah, you know, don't waste my time. Not that I care about dating services, but it's just like they're really not... They're not Christians. I, I don't even know what that word means anymore. You know, it, it's like no, they, they don't do not. They're not sold out to Jesus Christ. All right, moving on. For those of you who are greatly appalled by the fact that I would talk about Jesus, but here it is on the uh, soul.org. That's a groovy type, uh, website name, isn't it? Soul.org. Yes, soul drink. No, anyway. Um, but here they have a list of their. 
former members that they're very, very proud of, among them, uh, number Washington and Lincoln. And about Lincoln, it says, uh, President of the United States, instrument in the hands of destiny to free those held slaves in a free country, immortalized by his noble works and the assassin's hand, member of the Great or World Council and Council of Three of the Fraternus, co-worker, friend, and associate of General Hitchcock and Dr. Randolph, was born in Hardin County, Kentucky, February 12, 1809. Practically without funds and without help other than his own efforts, he became one of the world's truly great men. At the age of 21, he possessed only six books, and they were the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress, Aesop's Fables, The Arabian Nights, uh, Life of Washington, and Statutes of Indiana, uh, because uh, I guess he was a lawyer, remember. Uh, it says, um, Lincoln's Getty, Gettysburg Address as a place of honor in Oxford's university, uh, in Oxford University, England, proclaimed by literary critics as the most perfect piece of literature ever written in the English language. It is claimed that Lincoln's writings totaled 1,078,000 words, more than are contained in the Bible, 5% more words than in uh, the complete works of Shakespeare. I guess that's good. I don't know. Uh, it is also said that with the exception of the Master, they don't want to call him Jesus Christ. That's why they're phonies. Uh, and also also calls Christ the Nazarene, because he was a Nazarene, but they won't call him Jesus Christ. So let me start over again. It is also said that with the exception of the Master, the Nazarene, more words were written about Lincoln than of any other man who ever lived. Lincoln accomplished all that destiny had planned for him, and no man can do more. He died by the assassin's hand, April fifteenth, 1865. Of Lincoln, as of Washington, it may be said that their works are their e eternal monuments. To say much more of them, would belittle their accomplishments in a world filled with selfishness, whatever that means. All right, um, but here again, you have it supported that Lincoln was a member of uh, the, the Rosicrucians, as was Washington, Benjamin Franklin as well. You can go to soul.org and, and poke around. But this to me also is an indication that if you're really truly sold out to Jesus Christ, and I mean, if you folks aren't, that's okay. But understand that in the realm about which I speak, you, you do not take an oath to anything else. You pledge yourself to no one else but to uh, Jesus Christ. And this, of course, is a, a, a conflict here. But be that as it may, just wanted to run that by you. Uncle Floyd, thank you for reminding me about that. And I just wanted to add this. I had come across this some time ago, never used it. But perhaps, to a certain extent, this might add some kind of humanity, uh, depth, to characters from a time before we saw them on TV and such, <clears throat> to get kind of a, a 360 view of the individual. We're left so much with what I would call a flat representation of characters in history. And we all know it just kind of doesn't suffice. So I'm going to offer this kind of in pursuit of a um, real physical Lincoln. Th this is from a website, uh, doctor, and spell that out, don't abbreviate it, Dr. Zebra, 
Com. It's a pseudonym. And you can go to that site and you can see this for yourself and decide what you wish. I won't go through all this because I think if you're so intrigued by what I might offer, uh, you'll go and read the rest for yourself. Uh, but about Lincoln, and, and I'm not I'm not even close to being maybe halfway done with the books I want to read about this whole situation. Um, but at any rate, um, you know, you'll get a wide array of uh, takes on Lincoln. Many of them, like I said, again, elevated because he's right up there with Washington as far as being near um, deific characters, if not the deific characters. Um, and I would probably have more respect for Lincoln than Washington. But be that as it may, um, here's some of the findings that this particular doctor uh, came up with. And there's a book out there. I've not read it. I probably won't. But it looks very interesting if you're so inclined to want to read more. Uh, the title is The Physical Lincoln, A Photomedical Solution to the Puzzle of Abraham Lincoln's Height, Face, Pseudo-Depression, and Imminent Cancer Death by John G. Sotos. Okay, so you can look into that if you wish. But I'm just running through a, a bit of a laundry list about uh, Dr. Zebra uh, debunks certain uh, claims of, of uh, about Lincoln's uh, health and then support some others, and I'll just run through some of these. It's just more or less just to give you a body that's three-dimensional and real, attached to the person we only know kind of in 2D. All right, it says, um, Lincoln and several of his family members had a hereditary cancer syndrome called multiple endocrine neoplasia, type 2B. The diagnosis strongly suggests that Lincoln was dying of cancer in his last months and also explains many previously mysterious Lincolnian characteristics. And they would be Lincoln's body shape, that is, his height, long limbs, big feet, leanness, high voice, flat feet, sunken chest, sagging face, uh, that witnesses mistakenly thought was sadness or depression, uh, bumpy lips and big lower lip, the large bump on Lincoln's right cheek, Lincoln's fatigue, headaches, fainting, and cold hands and feet in his last months. In his intermittent uh, droopy eyelids, constipation, high voice, his propensity to lie, uh, um, let's see, hold on. His propensity to lie on the floor when reading and rest his feet on a table when sitting. Lincoln's asymmetric face and homeliness. Uh, loose jointedness, the death of three of Lincoln's sons before age 20, and probably his mother's death at 34. That's Lincoln's mother. That would be uh, Nancy Hanks, I believe. Uh, for many years, Dr. Zero reported, as have several others, that Lincoln was colorblind. Recently, however, he reviewed the original evidence behind this assertion and found it completely worthless. There is no good reason to believe Lincoln had defective color vision. So does that have anything to bear with his feelings towards blacks? Also, uh, Lincoln's father moved the family to Macon County, Illinois in 1830. All the family members developed ague and fever that autumn, probably Vivax malaria. 
They treated it with Peruvian bark and whiskey and resolved to leave the area. Uh, Peruvian bark contains quinine, which is an effective anti-malarial. Lincoln, having reached the age of 21, settled in New Salem, Illinois. During the famous, quote, deep snow, unquote, winter of 1830-1831, still remembered even 100 years later, and that is true, Lincoln's feet were barely frozen while crossing the Sangamon River. He was marooned for weeks in the cabin belonging to the Warnick family. Mrs. Warnick treated Lincoln by putting his feet in the snow, quote, to take out the frostbite. I'm not so sure that isn't a bad idea. <clears throat> the hot summer of 1835 in New Salem, Illinois, followed a wet spring. Perfect conditions for malaria. Lincoln had chills and fever on alternate days for at least a month and took heroic doses of quinine and cathartics, but irregularly. Then his near fiance Ann Rutledge, died of brain fever, perhaps typhoid. Claims that this triggered an episode of major depression in Lincoln rest on incomplete analysis of the historical record. A neighbor couple treated the bereaved Lincoln, who returned to work no later than three weeks after Rutledge's death. Lincoln's law partner, William Herndon, uh, who um, we heard from, so to speak, in uh, some of the quotes that were used, in the book by um, Lamont, and you'll hear, well, yeah, you'll hear them because obviously I've um, recited them in Who Was A Part One. So Herndon <clears throat> was very much involved with Lincoln. It says uh, Herndon wrote that Lincoln had syphilis about 1835-1836. Herndon said Lincoln told him this, long known to Lincoln scholars. This topic erupted into public debate in the 1980s because many historians did not believe Herndon, while the writer, Gore Vidal, did. Dr. Zebra's full discussion finds no reason to disbelieve Herndon and finds many reasons to believe him. Analysis of a blood stain on the cuff of Dr. Woodward showed that Lincoln had blood type A. Um, in brackets it says, I am not sure the cuffs are Woodward's, more is written about the cuffs of Dr. Edward Curtis, and I believe those were attending physicians or physicians in proximity to Lincoln after he was shot in Ford's theater. Moving on, Lincoln was six foot three point seven five inches. We'll call him six foot four. Had long legs, arms, long thin feet, long hands, a long thin face, a long thin neck, flat feet, and quote a sunken breast unquote. And this was in the words of his law partner Herndon. Uh, all these characteristics are typical of persons with Marfan syndrome. However, uh, this does not mean Lincoln had Marfan syndrome. However, more than a dozen different medical conditions cause the same type of body shape. Uh, Lincoln had one of these other disorders. Um, still, it is proper to say that Lincoln was, quote, morphinoid meaning he was shaped like a person with Morphin Syndrome. For his time, Lincoln was about 7.5 inches taller than the average bear. <laughs> his height came from his legs, sitting he was no taller than the average person. It has been said that a cast of Lincoln's hands showed them to be muscular and powerful, not the slender hands of Morphin Syndrome. This is not correct. True, the cast show that Lincoln 
did not have the classic long, graceful hands and fingers of Marfan syndrome, but they also show that his hands were longer than normal and that his fingers were longer than normal. It is important to remember that Lincoln used an axe more or less all uh, every day from the time he was about eight years until uh, 23. No physician practicing today knows what that level of hand exertion does to the hands of someone with Marfan syndrome. Evidence for other features of Marfan syndrome, ocular, cardiovascular, familial, in Lincoln uh, has been presented but found weak. In 1959, Marfan syndrome was diagnosed in a distant relative of Lincoln, a third cousin four times removed. How do you trace that? On his father's side. Sharing one 4,096th of Lincoln's genetic material, it is difficult to ascribe much significance to this fact. Although the world's greatest authority in Marfan syndrome thinks it's a 50-50 that Lincoln had the condition, other geneticists and Dr. Zreber think it unlikely. Uh, much has been written about Lincoln's melancholy, but the evidence is not convincing. Advocates of the theory claim Lincoln had several periods of major, major depression after the death of his mother, the death of his fiancée, Ann Rutledge, and about the time of interpersonal difficulties with Mary Todd in early 1841. Other cited uh, instances are after the terrible Union loss at Chancellorville um, and after the death of his son, Willie. He signed no official documents for four days with regard to his death. Much of the evidence for Lincoln's depression derives from observations of his facial expression. This is unreliable, however. Lincoln's low muscle tone made his face sag whenever he was disengaged from his surroundings. This gave him a profoundly sad appearance, regardless of the uh, internal mood. Dr. Zebra calls this phenomenon pseudo-depression. All right, um, again, moving on. <clears throat> I'm not reading everything here. You can if you wish, just to hit what you might call the high points. Uh, did Lincoln have cancer? If he had multiple endocrine, uh, endocrine neoplasm type B, the answer is certain, yes. The historical record also suggests he had cancer. Lincoln began losing weight in 1860. There is no quantitative data about his weight after becoming president, but many people wrote of his declining appearance and increasing thinness. Casts of his face in 1860 and 65 show a striking loss of soft tissue. Temporal wasting is present on the 1865 cast. In his last months, Lincoln had headaches, cold feet, and hands, exercise intolerance and sweating, uh, pervasive fatigue that a work respite did not ease, fainting, and nausea. These findings are compatible. After delivering the Gettysburg Address, November 19, 1863, Lincoln developed a severe headache on the train ride back to Washington. He did not miss work over the next couple days, but his sense of humor vanished. He went to bed early on November 25th with a headache and was sick in bed the next day. From November 26th to December 1st, he issued no official correspondence. A scrawled note on November 27th shows the shaky handwriting of a very sick man. With some difficulty, smallpox was eventually diagnosed. It was reported to the public as uh, varioloid which is the mildest of the four clinical syndromes of smallpox, 
Clearly, however, Lincoln had full-blown smallpox, not varioloid. Although the acute crisis had passed by early December, he is described as still recovering through the entire month. Only on January 1st, 1864, does someone observe, quote, he has a U of health to which he has long been a stranger. During the whole of his presidency, Lincoln was beset by people asking for jobs, commissions, pardons, and other favors. When informed that his disease was highly contagious, Lincoln remarked, quote, There is one good thing about this. Now we have something I can give everybody. <laughs> and finally, uh, the bullet from the assassin's gun entered behind the left ear and lodged behind the right eye. When Dr. Charles Leal arrived in Lincoln's box at Ford's Theater, he found the president without a radial pulse and breathing laboriously, still sitting upright in his chair. Leal, just two months out of medical school, laid Lincoln onto the floor and resuscitated him using various physiological techniques. Eyewitness accounts of the shooting and its immediate, immediate aftermath uh, are available from Dr. Leal and more from Dr. Charles Taft. And there's links to their uh, depositions, I guess, if you wish to go that way. An autopsy was performed in the White House, restricted to the head only, as was the embalming. Now, this is probably the most provocative aspect of Lincoln. And really, the whole Civil War. I'm going to read from a book written by Troy Cowan entitled Lincoln, Davis, and Booth, Family Secrets. Now, I've been in communication with the author. Uh, he's a good man. Uh, been a pleasure to email with him, and soon I'll speak with him. Uh, he's kind of distilled uh, the information regarding the fact that Okay, you ready for this? Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis were sons of the same father but different mothers. In fact, they were half-brothers. Uh, if you've ever seen photos, by the way, I mean, I've thought about this separate from uh, reading uh, Troy's work and, and corresponding with him, but I, I, I really had a laugh because, I mean, when I looked at Jefferson Davis with some of these, what would you call, what, presidential photographs and Lincoln, I was like, you know what? They kind of look alike. <laughs> I mean, all right, that's all I'm going to say. But just reading an excerpt from um, Troy's work, again, Lincoln Davis and Booth Family Secrets, um, on the chapter, Nancy meets Samuel Davis. Now, Nancy Hanks was Lincoln's mother, uh, she was married to Thomas Lincoln. And we'll take it from there. Thomas Lincoln, Nancy's new husband, was a carpenter and would travel alone for months looking for work. On these occasions, Nancy was left behind. She worked as a washerwoman and seamstress to support herself and her baby. Nancy described her husband as a no-good drunk. One day in Elizabethtown, Nancy was viewing an auction of beautiful stallions when she noticed a handsome man selling some of his prized horses. His name was Samuel Davis. They struck, struck up a conversation and an attraction. With Thomas gone for months, a romance between Nancy and Samuel developed. 
Samuel was in love and bought some property near Elizabethtown just so he could be close to Nancy. Samuel divided his time between his wife and his lover. Every few months, Samuel would return to his horse farm near Hodgenville to attend to business and see Nancy. One day, Nancy was telling Samuel that she was pregnant with his baby um, as Thomas watched. And this means Thomas Lincoln somehow, well, I mean, he's, he's back in the picture. Uh, maybe he just wrote in that day. It's not really explained here, but it said this discussion was going on as, quote, Thomas watched. This would be Thomas Lincoln. Um, watching from behind a tree, Thomas seemed more upset with Nancy than he was with Samuel. To appease Thomas, Samuel offered to give Thomas some land near Nolan Creek. Thomas accepted the offer, and he and Nancy moved there to farm the land. Davis called this land uh, with a farmhouse on it. He called it Dancing Spring Farm. Water bubbled up from the ground, ran a few feet, and sank back into the ground. Dr. Christopher Graham, a neighbor, visited the Lincolns at Nolan Creek. He said the home was comfortable. They had a cow and calf and milk and butter to make the food taste better and a good feather bed to sleep on. All right, moving on. Samuel's wife, this is Samuel Davis, his wife Jane was eight months pregnant when Nancy became pregnant. Nancy gave birth to Abraham Lincoln near Hodgenville, and Jane gave birth to Jefferson Davis 90 miles away near Farview. Fortunately for Samuel, Thomas Lincoln would be gone for many months at a time, allowing the romance between the 24-year-old Nancy and 52-year-old Samuel to continue. Now, beyond Troy's account, which does uh, come partly from a book that was published in 1973 with probably the most provocative title I've ever heard of any book. This title is Please Assassinate My Brother by Jane R. Davis. Now, I have it in my hands here. Um, The liner notes say this. Here is a remarkable book that tells an intriguing story. Author Jane Davis argues, and convincingly too, that Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis actually were half-brothers, both having the same father. That in itself is a sensational premise. The very idea that those two presidents of warring nations could even be related is shocking and fascinating, sufficiently so to induce the reader to read on and on in order to find justification for the theory. Uh, Mrs. Davis explains in a preface that she is recounting the inside story of her own ancestors' family feuds as told to her by grandfather John Riley Davis. She has written a novel of panoramic scope in which the reader uh, comes to feel and know the lives of the characters intimately. Blah, 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 blah. Um, According to Ms. Davis, Samuel Samuel Emery Davis was married to Jane Cook, and the youngest of their ten children was Jefferson Davis. Samuel had an affair with Nancy Hanks Lincoln, and from this union was born the future president of the United States. Mrs. Mrs. Davis's thesis is that the half-brothers learned of the other's identity, and a deadly enmity sprang up between them. Their bitterness, according to Mrs. Davis, contributed to the war between the states. Readable and realistic in style. Please assassinate my brother. Is a fast-moving, in-action, and crowdy. Yeah, okay, fine, blah, blah, blah. Uh, 
Now, upon hearing that this is what? Fiction based on fact? Of course, everyone in academia would throw their hands up and say this is completely dismissible because it's fiction, you know, fiction based on fact. Um, but if you get beyond the fiction part of it, which is to add um, dialogue and characterization to all the characters, it is not that implausible that this could not have happened. Now, she claims it, w it would have added, or it did add, to the enmity between both, well, new countries, if you will. I mean, one new country, the Confederate States of America, uh, and its problem with uh, the United States of America. But I'm not so sure that did that. I mean, I can live with the fact that, yeah, they were half-brothers, which in, in itself is extremely provocative. But there are things that I came upon, and I, I hope I can go back and, and find some, where it was intimated by principles close to Lincoln in, in books that came out after his assassination, of course, that Lincoln thought that if he could get a chance to talk to Jefferson Davis and was kind of posturing to see if it were impossible that both... Um, he and Davis could meet at some neutral point, and they weren't that far away from one another, and could work this whole thing out and find uh, an amicable peace uh, to both sides. So I don't find it that implausible, but I, I don't necessarily believe it caused any kind of greater, again, um, turmoil and hatred between two sections of the country, not at all. So... Um, you know, with that element, I can't say that it's so. I, I would think, and I would lean to some of the other accounts that stated that Lincoln felt and didn't did not necessarily explain why. And finally, on this, with regard to whether or not Lincoln instigated a war with the South, of course he did. Of course he did. But I'm going to tell you once again, was that his idea? Did he decide one person to go to war against the South? No. He was told to do that. This was a very important point in American history that's been painted over, brushed over. I mean, it's ridiculous as to how our history books look at this particular time. And I understand why. If you want to propagandize the people and to believe in that your nation has never done anything wrong, uh, everything is fine, uh, these bad old southern states were just that. Oh, man, come on. I mean, it's, it's fatiguing, you know. And here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say it time and time again for the little time I got left. Not in this show, but, you know, for whatever I've done. If people, if the masses believe the propaganda, and there's no other way I can call what's supposed to be information coming out of all the news outlets that there are today. I mean, thousands more than there were back when the printing press was made and newspapers were uh, disseminated, and then we got into radio at the beginning of the 20th century, and then we got into TV at the midpoint of the uh, 20th century, and now look what we got. But you know what it is? It's, it's a magnification of garbage. It is. Oh, the Internet liberated. Well, yeah, some people got, you know, understood. Some people 
grabbed access to information that made them understand the way things really are, but there's not enough of them. And there never will be enough of them. Point is, what do you want to do with the knowledge that you have? All right, and we'll move on. All right, uh, yeah, no, we're not going to move on. I'm going to say one last thing. Outside powers wanted this country split in half. There was a time when I thought that that, that was not the case. Um, I've reversed my thinking of several years ago because of other information I've come upon, the abundance of it, and also that, to be honest with you, and not to hang this guy out to dry, but Eric John Phelps has a right to his own certain point of view based on certain information, which was, frankly, at that time, mainstream quotes about what was going on. He wants to hang on to the fact that George Washington was really a Christian and this country was like, you know, God shed its grace on us because we just were all so Christian. No, forget it. Be that as it may, though, um, it would seem to me that the plans were for the country to be sundered in half. Uh, and though it was desired to have power over both the United States of America and the Confederate States of America, so that the country, you know, the two, the two halves united for a, a, a certain cause, let's say World War One. Spanish-American War, World War One and Two. All right, so you can look at the way things might have been if this country was split in half. All right, um, and, and my and my point in all this is I'll go on with later, and that is Lincoln knew exactly what he had to do. He had to prosecute the war that Buchanan didn't have the guts nor the desire to do, and um, and paid for it, uh, and just got his butt out of office as soon as possible so that Lincoln would have uh, in his lap dumped this the whole mess. Uh, and I won't say anything more because the mystery goes on and um, we'll dedicate more time to where this all was going and uh, the principles involved, okay? I, I, you know, I, I've said this in every other episode, I mean, although this is only the third, but there's a whole lot going on here. And I don't believe that I'll leave this whole subject without having um, fulfilled and responded to the questions that I've asked rhetorically. All right. Uh, Southern leaders of the Civil War. And let me just say this again, Hick. Sorry for butting in once again. This comes from Tulane.edu. Tulane University. All right. <clears throat> Southern leaders of the Civil War uh, period placed the blame for the outbreak of fighting squarely on Lincoln. They accused the president of acting aggressively toward the South and of deliberately providing, um, provoking war excuse me, in order to overthrow the Confederacy. For its part, the Confederacy sought a peaceable accommodations of its legitimate claims to independence and resorted to measures of self-defense only when threatened by Lincoln's coercive policy. This... Uh, thus, rather, excuse me, Confederate Vice President Alexander H. Stevens claimed that the war was, quote, inaugurated by Lincoln, end of quote. Stevens readily acknowledged that General Beauregard's troops fired the first gun, but he argued the larger truth is that in personal uh, or national conflicts, it is not he who strikes the first blow or fires the first gun that inaugurates or begins the conflict. Rather, the true aggressor is the first who renders the force necessary.
Stevens identified the beginning of the war as Lincoln's order sending a hostile fleet styled the Relief Squadron to reinforce Fort Sumter. The war was then and there inaugurated and begun by the authorities at Washington. I have no problem with that. General Beauregard did not open fire upon Fort Sumter until this fleet was, his knowledge, very near the harbor of Charleston and until he had inquired of Major Anderson whether he would engage to take no part in the expected blow, then coming down upon him from the approaching fleet. When Major Anderson would make no such promise, it became necessary for General Beauregard to strike the first blow as he did. Otherwise, the forces under his command might have been exposed to fires at the same time, to two fires at the same time, one in front and the other in the rear. The use of force by the Confederacy, therefore, was in, quote, self-defense, rendered necessary by the actions of the other side. Jefferson Davis, who, like Stevens, wrote this, his account uh, after the Civil War, took a similar position. Fort Sumter was rightfully South Carolina's property after secession. Well, it was before the secession. Well, yeah, I guess you could say it wasn't. It's federal property, even though it's within a state boundaries, and we, we know that because there's federal parks and all that other stuff. But yes, certainly after the uh, division, the federal government had no claim any longer to whatever it had previously held in the South. But in the court of law, I'm sure that would have been interesting. All right. All right, Fort Sumter was rightfully South Carolina's property after secession, and the Confederate government had uh, shown great forbearance in trying to reach an equitable settlement with the federal government. But the Lincoln administration destroyed these efforts by sending a hostile fleet to Sumter. The attempt to represent us as the aggressors, uh, Jefferson Davis argued, uh, is as unfounded as the complaint made by the wolf against the lamb in the familiar fable. He who makes the assault is not necessarily he that strikes the first blow or fires the first gun. So that's the old point. You know, if you sucker a punch, you know, and somebody hits you, it's like in sports. You know, whoever, like, does the first provocation usually is not sought uh, or caught by the referee or any official. The person turns around and whacks the other guy upside the head. Yep, you get caught. All right, so we understand this whole thing, right? Uh, From Davis's point of view, to permit the strengthening of Sumter, even if done in a peaceable manner, was unacceptable. It meant the continued presence of a hostile threat to, to Charleston. Further, although the ostensible purpose for the expedition was to resupply, not reinforce the fort, the Confederacy had no guarantee that Lincoln would, be a, would abide by his word. And even if he restricted his actions to resupply in, the case, uh, in this case, what was to prevent him from attempting to reinforce the fort in the future? Thus, the attack on Sumter was a measure of, quote, defense. To have acquiesced in the fort's relief, even at the risk of firing the first shot, would have been as unwise as it would be to hesitate to strike down the arm of the assailant who levels a deadly weapon at one's breast until he was actually fired. In the 20th century, this critical view of Lincoln's actions gained a wide audience through the writings of Charles W. Ramsdell and others. According to Ramsdell, the situation at at Sumter uh, presented Lincoln with a series of dilemmas. If he took action to maintain the fort, he would lose the border south and a large segment of northern opinion which wanted to, re- to conciliate the South. If he abandoned the fort, he jeopardized the Union by legitimizing the Confederacy. Lincoln also hazarded losing the support of a substantial portion of his own Republican Party and risked appearing a weak and ineffective leader. 
Lincoln could escape th- uh, these predicaments, however, if he could uh, induce Southerners to attack Sumter. Quote, to assume the aggressive and thus put themselves in the wrong in the eyes of the North and of the world. End of quote. By sending a relief expedition ostensibly to provide bread to a hungry garrison, Lincoln turned the tables on the Confederates, forcing them to choose whether to, present, uh, to permit the fort uh, to be strengthened or to act as the aggressor. By this astute strategy, Lincoln maneuvered the South into firing the first shot. Well, of course he did. But does that mean he wanted to do so? I'm not saying he did. All I mean is that presidents do not do their own bidding. They don't make uh, legislation. They don't uh, execute actions by their own volition. It is something that is told them to do, and they do it. Like it or not. All right, this will end the second part of Who Was Abe, which is part of a great work called Mystery Theater Presents. Um, who ordered the hit on Abe? And it's going to get a lot better now. Uh, the a hiatus that I took during the holidays, which I do not apologize for, uh, is over, and we'll get to it assiduously. And I hope you'll continue to listen. Uh, if you have any problems or questions, uh, do me a favor. I don't mind fielding them. But, you know, make them reasonable, okay? If you're going to be an asshole, of course I'm not going to answer. That's all I'm going to say. And so that's it until next time. If there is a next time. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. 
Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.